Hey, if you have a Bible, and there should be one in the pew in front of you there, um, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have no idea what a testament is or what 1 Corinthians is, just get that book that says Bible on it and turn to page 1775. Boom. I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through to the end of the chapter. Okay. Starting in verse 6 in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. It says this, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish you had really become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. For we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to you to shame you, but to warn you. As my dear children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Which do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love with a gentle spirit? I want to—I need to take a few minutes to go over some of what we've gone over. I love how you're all spread out again. That's so much fun. Because um, I get to turn more. Um, I want to go back to this whole issue of pride and humility because it's at the basis of all of this. Um, he says, there's, there's this boasting. Some of you become arrogant. It's part of the theme of these first four chapters. And um, uh, somebody came up to me last week and said, Nick, you talked about um, pride and humility and how important humility is. And I know that I need to work on this. So what do I do? You didn't talk about that. And so um, I put something up this morning on my blog, which is just um, Nick, N-I-C, Gibson.org. If you go there, there's a post, and it has the best um, resources that I know of for free on the internet that you can get, real easy to get, and um, that should be helpful. Um, uh, but but he, here's the thing. The first thing is you really have to be convinced at the very deepest level of yourself that categorically speaking, this is just categorically true, Pride is always your worst enemy. Humility, always your greatest friend. And I talked yes, last time about how pride and humility, depending on where you are with all that, sets, an artif sets a boundary on the amount of spiritual growth that can happen. One of the things I talked about was how it's getting to be that gardening season, and since I can't scuba spearfish um, in Wisconsin, I've taken up gardening, which is, you know, a close equivalent. And... Um, and one of the things I said last week was I had, a t I had terrible germination in the plants that I first put in. So um, I planted this one like four weeks ago, okay? Four weeks ago. And there's 72 slots in this tray, and there is a pepper, a pepper, 
of lettuce we ate that last night for dinner. <laughs> and then there's two, you can see two little sage plants, or no, they're thyme or something. That is a weed. There are actually a couple of weeds that sprouted up. Um, but four out of 72, and every one of those boxes has more than one seed planted in it. Every one. At least two. Okay. Now, last week, I had already started this experiment, but I was trying to figure out what did this. And so I planted this other one. That is about nine days old. Okay. And you can see that there's just stuff everywhere. And because I was like, okay, what's the issue here? So I mean, I'm a little obsessive, so I did read three gardening books between the last time I talked to you and now. Um, and one of the things it says, in this, particularly in the tomato books, is that you aren't even trying until um, the soil temperature is 70 degrees. You're not even playing ball. It's just not going to happen, okay? And, um, and what happened was when I planted that first one, because I didn't want my wife to be annoyed by the mess, you know, in our house, I put it in my mom's addition. But we weren't running the heat in my mom's addition. But it was well above freezing. You know, it was like 50 degrees in there. I didn't, I didn't realize— nothing, right? Nothing came up. You know, just a few varsity overachievers, you know, kind of popped their heads out, and that's it, you know? And—but I—so I planted this one, and I took it up to the upstairs bedroom with two windows on the south side of the house that's always just uncomfortably warm. And wouldn't you know, in—tomatoes are supposed to come up in five to seven days. In four days, I had tomatoes coming up everywhere. Four days. Boom! Because heat matters. Now, if you go to the parable of the sword in your head, this is Mark 4, if you've never read it, go to that another time. There's this parable where Jesus is going along. He says, there's a sower. There's somebody who throws the seed out. And so the preacher, whoever that is, is the sower, the person who's planting the seeds. So Paul and Apollos, me, Jesus, whatever. It's good company. And then there's the soil. That's us. That's the people who hear the gospel. The seed is the gospel itself. And so the parable is about whether the seed grows. And the point of that parable is, in some people, it's going to grow and produce an enormous amount of fruit. In other places, it's going to get choked out. That's just how it is. But if you were to stretch that metaphor a little bit and bring in some other biblical texts about spiritual growth, you could add the fourth dimension of agriculture. And that is that humility is the heat. That without the heat— that comes from humility, to allow the seed of the gospel to germinate in the soil that is you, no matter who sows it or waters it, without that heat of humility, it just—you're not playing ball. It just doesn't happen, and here's why. Because pride is the opposite of the gospel. Pride is to not know that God is God, and therefore to be correspondingly self-important. And humility is the opposite of that. Humility is to have the whole world ordered under their proper values because God is God. So essentially, humility is faith applied to our self-importance life. That's all it is. And pride is to not have the gospel applied to our valuing of ourself and our self-importance and our own psychology. Does that make sense? Um, I want—let me take a couple minutes here to talk about a definition of pride, because before we can really attack pr the whole issue of pride and humility, one, we've got to be convinced of its central importance in Scripture and about growing spiritually. Second, we've got to be able to identify it properly, because most of us, very broadly among Americans, um, we tend to think humility is something that it isn't. We don't know what it looks like, and so it's very difficult, you know, to, to figure it out. When I was a kid, we used to go out and get mushrooms, in the cow pastures. I won't tell you what they were growing in, but here, they, you, you pick morels, right? We picked, somebody just gave me some. Those are some cool-looking mushrooms. Nothing like the ones I grew up picking, but you, you got to know the right ones because you pick the wrong ones. You know, you could, you could die. That happens, you know? And so, well, ours in New, in New York, they, had, they were pink on the underside, and so you knew that they were the right mushroom if they were pink, and these apparently are unmistakable. But you want to get this right, and so you got to know what humility is. Now, in Scru the Screwtape Letters, a book by C.S. Lewis, in which it's like an overlord demon teaching a younger tempter how to ruin humans, um, in, chat in letter 14, which is linked to on the blog that I, t I told you about, um, he talks about, he says basically this, he says, listen, Wormwood, and remember this is the devil talking to another tempter. He says, listen, you're human who's become a Christian. The, what the enemy, God, is going to try to do in this guy is to make him humble. The, the enemy's always doing that. And so here's what you got to do. You've got to rush in there and define the term, and get him to think humility is something it isn't. Because if you do that, he will try to be humble to obey the enemy, God, but if we can define what that means, 
We can actually move him away from God as he tries to be humble. He says, here's what you do. You get him to believe that humility is thinking less of yourself. If you can get uh, the human to believe that humility is thinking less of yourself, we're in really good shape. And he says, here's why. Because um, you'll get him to try to believe that his worth is less than it is. Now, this will be really helpful for two reasons. One is because um, you're actually asking him to lie. Because in his honest estimation of his abilities, if it's here, and you get him to try to believe it's here, you're actually inserting dishonesty into the practice of following the God of truth, which is fabulous, says this devil, right? And then he says, now here's the second part. Because he really on one level knows it's a lie, he won't be able to believe it. And so he'll be constantly circling around this difference, trying to get himself to believe it. He never will be able to. And what it'll do is it'll focus him more on himself and his own inner psychology instead of turning outward to God and his neighbor, which is the essence of pride. You see? Because pride isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less is the classic. I think that's from Lewis too, actually. Um, it's thinking of yourself less. It's being less— concerned about how you figure in at all. It's not figuring in yourself at a lower amount. It's just not figuring yourself in. You don't, you don't matter, not because you don't matter, but because in the estimation of the thing itself, you don't matter. Let me put it this way. Um, imagine the smartphone of 50 years from now, okay? Like it grows wheat if you hold it flat. And, you know, it like phases in sushi, and it gives you X-Men powers if you like hook it up to something. And it has a battery life of like four hours. And, you know, it's just like, I mean, it's really good. And, and it, it just changed everybody's life. I mean, globally, everybody's life is better. It's huge breakthrough. And now, now let me ask you this. Would it make any difference how you celebrated it, whether you created it or somebody else did? Right? That's the essence of humility. The essence of humility, Lewis says this in, in that letter, 14, except he uses a different example. He, said, he says this. Humility is essentially this, that a man could design and build the greatest cathedral in England, know it was the greatest cathedral, and rejoice that it was the greatest cathedral, no more or no less, because it was he that designed and built it. Now, that's not how most people see humility, but that's what humility is. It is to value things appropriately under, the, under how God sees the world. And so therefore, you don't have to devalue yourself or overvalue yourself. You just have to realize you don't—you're not important in the figuring of where things are. And the, the, one of the great effects of this is that you can rejoice in a lot—you can take pleasure in a lot more stuff. For example, last night I went bowling with the Family Life Connection group. It was like all these couples basically bowling, which is apparently a sport of some kind. And um, <clears throat> so they have like a praise and humiliation tradition where if you, get a, if you get a gutter ball, you have to wear this little sunflower hat thing until the next person gets a gutter ball. And th but if you get a strike— you get these, like, balloons on your table until the next person gets a strike and you get a chocolate, right? So, so I get ready, and I'm, I'm a real hit and miss kind of, like, it doesn't matter how I anyway. So I roll, and I get a strike, right? And I'm, I'm happy about that. And so I go to get the balloons. And Ellen Flaumeyer, who's kind of runs that thing, she goes over, and I see her walking over and picking up the balloons. I was like, she's getting me the balloons. And she brings them, and she hands them to somebody else. And I was like, apparently this woman— got a strike a millisecond after me. So I never get the balloons, right? I can still get the chocolate, apparently, but I don't get the balloons. But she gets the balloons, apparently. And I was like, and if Ellen had heard this sermon before that, she could have said to me, because I gave her a hard time about that, she could have said, Nick, you apparently are not—you do not take equal pleasure in your strike versus hers. <laughs> They're both strikes. They're both good throws. They're both objectively— the, of the same value, but mine was a lot better. It was more important to me. Why? Because how I figured in mattered, right? That is the essence of pride. Now, the reason that's so important to get straight is because we, there's no way to make any progress in humility and pride 
in, in growing humility and killing pride and applying the gospel these things if you don't even know what humility is. Right? And, okay, I'm going to say this, and you may not believe this, okay? I'm just going to say it, and you just take it for what it's worth, okay? Um, one of the reasons I do not come off as very humble, people say that sometimes, um, is partly because it's true that I'm not very humble. I, and I just, I'll just stipulate that right now, okay? But part of it is because I believe one of the things that needs to be done in our culture is to make sure that you don't exhibit the fake symptoms of humility. So I, I actually, intentionally, I try not to exhibit what I consider the false characteristics of humility, hoping that through my lifestyle I can try to communicate what I think humility really is. Now, you might think that's a cop-out, and you might be right, okay? But, um, but what I do think is the case is we need to try to get straight in our heads what real humility is, and we need to let go of what false humility is, because false humility is pride, just with a different label. Do you understand? Okay, we need to move on. Now, the, the issue here in chapter 4 is that we've already talked about— last week we talked about the fact that pride leads to distortion. When pride comes in, we see the world wrong because we're at the center of it, not God, and it kind of distorts things, and we don't see the world right. The effect of that is— if we don't see the whole world right, one of the things that's in the world is us. We don't see ourselves right. And so there becomes this kind of personal delusion about how important or not important I am. Now, here's what happens. It doesn't end with us, does it? it we are amidst people. We're situated among a community. And so it goes out to everybody else. And so what starts with distortion and leads in us to delusion ends up creating among us dysfunction. And the culprit of most of the dysfunction among us is pride, ultimately. The other things are symptomatic of the heart problem. The reason we gossip about each other, the reason we slander each other, the reason we have schisms, the reason we yell, the reason we get angry, the reason we—whatever we do, that is the fruit picked from the tree of pride. Now, um, therefore, you can say—you can shorten that to this. Pride always leads to social dysfunction. Whereas humility brings clarity, it tells the truth, and it teaches love. And it does it by means of applying the message of the cross of Christ's death and resurrection for us and in us. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's what we're going to do for the next 50 minutes. Um, I'm just kidding. Is we're going to look at the, the three symptoms in this passage— and then what the, the way this passage deals with them as solutions. And I'm going to do it separately. So the first three will hopefully be fast, and then the next three will be a little bit longer. So the first is, the first symptom is that we start taking pride in gifts over guts. Here's what I mean by that, is that we start celebrating abilities rather than commitments. We start—that is, achievements rather than endurance. Here's why that's important. Because gifts are gifts. You can say whatever you want about how much work you've put in to develop your gift, but the raw potential of your gift already existed, and you've done less than you think, and your work is actually less definitive in creating your skills than you think they are. There's so many just breaks that you've gotten in life to get you to the most positive things in your life that we don't even know about. Don't even know about. Little things that happen that in God's providence he sees, but we have no clue of. And so we think, oh, look, I, you know, I, I worked hard. I, you know, I went to college. I went to graduate school. I did this, and now I'm here, and, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm wearing a sweater vest. I mean, I've arrived. And, but in reality, it's true that I, I worked hard. There's points in my life I worked very hard, but it's also true that I was born to a two-parent family, two educators. I was, re I was reading before I went to school because I have a crazy teacher mom. And, uh, and my college was paid for by my parents because they were good with money and actually saved, and she was an immigrant, and blah, 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 blah. And none of—what I have done it would not have been possible. It wouldn't even have been conceivable in my mind as a person had not a lot of those things happened. And so, gifts are gifts, right? But when we start to take pride in gifts over guts, we lose track of what's important, and it begins to defile everything. Um, we begin to think about success and what brings success, and we begin to worship the gifts that tend to get us success, and we lose track of what's important. Here's, here's an example. There's a guy um, named John Scully who wrote a book about his life and so on. And at one point, <clears throat> he's friends with Steve Jobs, who apparently lead, led at one point this company called Apple. Um, and Steve Jobs was trying to get John Scully to come on 
his executive staff, I think as the CFO or CEO, or I don't, I don't remember what, but anyway. Um, and Scully at the, at the time was the CEO of Pepsi-Cola. And so he's CEO, he's got stock options, he's got plenty of money, he probably had something that flies that was at his disposal. And, um, and, so, and, and so Jobs is trying to get him to come in, but, but listen, Apple was not a sure thing. It was very experimental technology and software at that point. Pepsi was a sure thing. People love their caffeine, right? And so, I mean, there, there are people, they can't live without Diet Coke. They, I mean, they'd have to go to rehab, right, if that stopped being produced. And so, <clears throat> um, so it, the whole thing culminated in a hotel room, and John Scully and Steve Jobs are talking, and Scully's like, the package isn't right. I just, and, and Steve Jobs apparently goes, listen, more money is not a problem. And, and, and so Scully was still kind of hemming and hawing. He said, I don't really think, I don't know if I want to do this. I'm in a good place. And apparently, this is what Steve Jobs says. At one point, he just got, Jobs got so frustrated. He said, John, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? Apparently, iPhones are that important. Um... But he said, apparently he writes in this book, he said it was like a punch in the gut he couldn't stop or tighten up for. It just was like, he realized that, he just realized that, he, that his values had gone out of whack. He didn't care about changing the world anymore. He, 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 all of his ducks were over here in stock options and places and Pepsi, people are going to buy Pepsi. That's not going to stop. And he, he, he didn't realize right in front of him was a chance to be part of the future of human society. And he was just kind of shrugging at it. And that, but that's what happens when we don't recognize the value of people with guts. When we don't say, you know what, there's all, lots of people who talk, lots of people who are skilled, but, but I know this guy, that guy has guts. And if I'm going to be like somebody, I'd rather be like him. Right? But when we start taking pride in one person against another, once we start allowing pride to come in and create the dysfunction and the delusion and the whatever, the result is we start valuing gifts over guts. The progression from that is very predictable, and that is that we start valuing talk over actions, right? Pastor says, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And the reason this is important, and I, I do think there, to a certain extent, Paul is referring to miracles. But I think he's referring to a lot more than that because the rest of the rest of the book is about obedience It's about the power of the gospel to transform lives. And here's what paul is observing. He says, okay, so you got preachers and they're good Right, he said, but here's here's the problem What i'm hearing about your church is that the holiness curve the curve of real spiritual transformation looks like this Now Power, in the words of God, respoken. Power in speaking. Power in preaching. If those people, yeah, they might talk, but if those people had power, really, the result would not be what I'm hearing. And so if you think that power is the ability to raise the volume of your voice without speeding up, or the ability to wave your hand properly, or the ability to turn a phrase well, or to alliterate, or to use sounds that play off of each other and sound quaint. If you think that's what power is, let me just tell you, then it would be evidenced in you guys, is what he's saying. And it's not. It's not. So it's not power. It's just talk. But when pride comes in and spiritual growth halts, and we begin to look to something else, then we're going to look to gifts, and it's, going to, and it's going to point us to people who talk, to people who do stuff that we could do, because there's no power in our life. So we look at other people with no power in their life, but that are good at turning a phrase. We, we start thinking that people who talk for four minutes on CNN, that those people have a kind of job we would like. You know? And it's ridiculous. But we've lost our ability to value guts. And so we lose our ability to see the meaningfulness of talk, the, the, the meaningfulness of actions over talk. And it, and it will happen. It always happens. 
Because when pride comes in and we start wanting success and we, then we don't want to take risks and therefore we don't want to be like people with guts and then we stop valuing action. And I, w- I would actually submit to you that we are a culture right now increasingly losing our ability to say, well, what have you done? We are a culture with a profusion of talkers who seem to do very little. And that was not Paul's dream for the community of Jesus because it wasn't Jesus' dream for the people he would make for himself. Moving forward, if those two things are true, then the third thing is very predictable. And that is that we will begin to reject fathers for hucksters. I don't have a better adjective for huckster, okay? But, but that's what starts happening. We will, st- there, we will get to the point where there will be an ultimate inversion of value. And there is hardly a greater inversion of value other than God for Satan, the great father for the great huckster, than when in person we begin to reject our spiritual fathers, or reject our real fathers for hucksters. This actually reminds me of when I was, I was like 14 to 16. You know, there's that, there's that life stage where what's going on in the wolf pack at school seems to matter more than the people who bore you and brought you up and provided everything for you. And I just remember there were, there were a number of years where, and, and I can, listen, I, I can tell you straight faced, and I'm not, I'm not pushing, my, my dad is a pretty great guy. He's a pretty great man. I mean, incredibly um, devoted, incredibly moral, a very good father. And, um, and there, but there were a few years where I would have done anything for those huckster chumps at school that we called cool, that didn't care about me. I would have sold my dad into slavery to buy the perfume that those girls liked. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I've never felt yet the appropriate amount of shame for those moments of my life. I've apologized. I apologized to my dad for that before he died. When I was 19 in college, like first semester, I was like, okay, I think it's starting to dawn on me what you all have done for me. But I, I've never felt it the way I should have. I just, I don't think I have the emotional depth. I don't know. But it, the horror, when I even begin to think about that, to know that the man who was there for everything, who did everything, who gave me life, who did everything I ever needed, provided everything I ever really should have wanted, was there for all the important moments of my life, released me out into the world that didn't hold on to me, empowered— I mean, I remember reading the book Wild at Heart. There are all these guys reading Wild at Heart, this book about—and the first half of it is about the father wound that everybody has. None of us can live whole lives because our fathers have screwed us up. And I remember reading that book and just not connecting with it. I mean, I was just like, yeah, you know, we should, like, we should be more aggressive. I agree with that part. But the whole, like, your dad has ruined you, so therefore you need deep, deep, deep healing. I remember reading that and just going— I don't, I don't think I, I don't know. Maybe I'm in denial, but I don't think I have it. Because that was my, was my but, but see, it, it's, it's not just these adolescent years. It is human, is human. We do this. Don't get mad at your adolescent for doing it to you if you're doing it to Jesus. Um, and if you're an adolescent, don't be an idiot. Your parents have done everything for you. Okay, if you disagree with them, say, I disagree, okay? Um, and quit thinking that those people you want to, get, to let you be part of the wolf pack club of tearing each other apart emotionally is really what you're going to want in five years. It's not. You're going to be ashamed and humiliated to think back on it. It's, it's terrible. But that's what happens when pride comes in. First, we start valuing gifts over guts. Then we start valuing talk over action. And the minute we don't have— we don't have anything for guts and action. We don't have anything for fathers and mothers. Because the role of father and mother is all about guts and action. It's all about guts and action. Good parents, guts and action. That's what it is. That's the difference between a terrible parent and a good parent. Guts and action. For the most part. And so we get to this place. But here's—okay, let me, let me not get ahead of myself here. So what are the treatments for this then, okay? 
The first is, sorry. It's not, it's a different time. It was a fundraiser. Um, One, you have to see abilities as gifts. Um, We call things gifts. We say, oh, he's so gifted. And then we turn around the next minute and act like it's not a gift. Like he, like it's just like a skill that he developed. Well, a gift is a gift, and a gift has at least two assumptions built into it. The first is, you didn't earn it. And the second is, that it was given by the giver with some kind of purpose. Now, for some gifts, it's just for you to enjoy it. It was given by the giver for you to enjoy. That's it. That's all there is to it. And so, you, but you still have a responsibility. Your responsibility is to be thankful, right? And to be glad and to enjoy it. That's not true with God. It, it is that, but it's more than that. All, all of his gifts come with a responsibility. He gave you a gift for the purposes of redemption, to glorify him and to love your neighbor. And therefore, if you look at somebody and you say, or you look at your own life and you say, wow, what a gift here. You better in the next breath say, and oh, the responsibility that must come with that. I'll tell you what, the, the, I remember when I was, I was in Lynn Haven, I was associate pastor, and I just was ready to be a senior pastor and, and, you know, do it my own way. And the weight of authority is very heavy. And I, I didn't realize that as much as I am beginning to. Um, and the weight of responsibility for gifts, the weight of responsibility for the authority that often comes from promotion because of those gifts, those things are very heavy. They're not glamorous from the inside. Um, this, what I do, you might think, oh, Nick gets it from, from people and talks and he tries to be funny. Um, this is blue-collar ox work, okay? This is not like otter swimmy, let's eat a rainbow trout fun, okay? I'll just tell you, it's not. You know, if I preached three times a year, it'd be fantastic, I'll, you know? But it's not, the minute you get doing the thing, and, here, and here's why that's really important, is that um, if you realize that, you can stop coveting other people's gifts. It can really happen. And you can, stop, you can stop doing the thing that I think is the most predictable in making Christians unfruitful. Do you want to know what that is? Anybody curious? Um, okay, there's one of you. Okay, so here, here's what it is. I'm just joking. Sorry. Um, so many Christians I have met and talked to who are frustrated because whoever's in charge will not let them do the thing they're gifted to do. And here's why it's really happening. And it's hard to tell people this. But here's why. Because person, let's say just say person A, okay? Fred. Fred actually has two gifts. One is more glamorous, so to speak, but he's not that good at it. It's there. He's okay at it. He's put some time into it. And then he's got another gift that he's actually just made for. It's just fish in water. Just, he does it, doesn't even know he's doing it, right? And here's the thing, but it's not glamorous, okay? There's no public recognition. There's no taking pride in one man over against another. And you know what happens? He wants to do that first gift so bad. He wants to do that first gift so bad. And so, and so he won't do the other one. And the whole church is impoverished. He's angry. Everybody's bitter. The person who's running the, the, this ministry has to be a gatekeeper and has to be like, no, I said no, I said no, I said no. And meanwhile, this other thing that he would be so fabulous at, he won't do. And, he's, and, and on top of that, he's mad. And um, most Christians have some ministry they want to do that they're okay at, that they need to let go. And there is another gifting that they have, that their gifting is much larger, that they could have much more effect at if they would just do that. You get this with overcrowded ministries too. You get, you know, some kind of ministry that can only take a couple people, and you get 50 people who want to do it, and they might all be good at it, but you really can still only have three people. And those people just be like, well, whenever an opening comes up, I'll, you know, I'll bat. Well, n- no. Um, be thankful. Listen, listen. If your gift isn't needed, you should be glad. Because you can do something else fruitful. Just, just think of it. That means, it means all the slots are full. That's great! And move on to the next thing. Where are the holes? Where are people, where do people need? It's not about you. It's about who's in need. If these thoughts are filled, all these needs are being met. There's need, all these 
thousands, millions of needs in the world that aren't being met. And you could go meet some of them. Unless you're so tied to your, to your not as good gift and you're so emotionally involved in being able to do what you want to do and do it the way you want to do it that you can't let it go. And there are just piles and piles and piles of Christians that are not fruitful and they're angry and they're unengaged and they're upset at leadership. And, and listen, I'm not—leadership, we're, we're, we're knuckleheads a lot of the time. I'm not saying that—but, but, but the reason is they won't just say, Oh, good, I can serve somewhere else. I mean, do what Jesus said. Put yourself at the bottom of the table. Go find the least noticed ministry possible and do it. If you're any good at it at all. And you are because either you're good with babies or a shovel, probably, and both are the most unglamorous things you can do. So, boom. That was free. Okay, next is that, oh, sorry, that a way of life before a way with words. We have got to get this straight. We have got to look at people's way of life, not whether they have a way with words. And we've got to know what those criteria are. We have to learn how to look for them. And because we cannot put the, promote the right people to be elders if we don't know what they are, we can't—we just can't—we can't make it work. And so here's some of the things we've got to look for. Not cheeky sayings or funny whatever. It's this. Long-term faithfulness. Effortless obedience. People who don't just obey Jesus, they actually take pleasure in it, and they're not eking it out with grinding teeth. Thankfulness and commitment. Or, I'm sorry, thankfulness and contentment. Patience and suffering. When they're suffering, they're not all riled up. They have an ability to be patient and to wait and to, and to get through it. Ch- that they choose sacrifice out of love. That every, that every once in a while, at least, they intentionally make their life harder for the good of others. That they're learning and they're teaching. They do not so that they can get up and speak in front of people, but because they find God genuinely interesting. That they have the emotional fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that there's a real humility. When we get to the point where we could actually know what that looks like, then we can see that. And we have to get to the point where we look to people to be leaders in our life and to be spiritual fathers and mothers to us who both exhibit the power of the Spirit and what the church has called for many generations, the way of the cross. That they, both of those things are present and accepted in their life. There's, you, you see power, power to obey, power to love, power to sacrifice, power to be patient in suffering, power to be faithful, and a willingness to walk the way of the cross. Just, this is exactly what Paul taught in, in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. What is that? To die like him and rise like him. To live the way of the cross and the way of his power, both together, right? And in Colossians 2, he says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. What is that? I choose to suffer so that— I can participate somehow in the suffering of Christ for his church. Not, not to atone, but to do the work of getting in there and giving the gospel. Right? That's how he felt. That's how he thought. That's how people who have guts and act actions are. And then lastly, we need to embrace spiritual fatherhood. Paul says, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Um, I, when I have read this in the past, I have always assumed that the passage, part that says 10,000 guardians in Christ referred to angels. I don't know if any of you assumed that too. Um, apparently, it's the same word for tutor in Galatians. That is, a governor, a governess, that a, a person hired by a wealthy family to look after the kids. And so the contrast isn't between uh, angels who aren't here, sort of. You can't see them or touch them or feel them. With a father who is here. The contrast is the level of commitment and the responsibility and the role and the authority, right? The authority of the governess comes from the dad, right? And the mom. 
doesn't come from the governance. And what he's saying is, listen, you've got lots of people who want to talk at you, okay? There's lots of people who want to act like a governess, like a tutor, like a teacher. He said, there's only one, you've only got, he doesn't say one father, because I think he wants them to see Apollos as a father, and, and whatever apostles come there as fathers to them. But he says, you don't have any fathers. And what he means by that is, these people they are so enamored with did not survive three or four Roman jails to get to them. It's just a fact. Didn't sail across the Aegean, which is, has so many ships at the bottom of it, you could hardly count. And they didn't, he didn't endure, they didn't endure multiple beatings half to death or any of that stuff. Paul did that. And there is a difference between that sort of a person and another sort of a person. That, that is, what a spiritual father is and what isn't. Now, here's, here's the reason why this is important. Because only a spiritual father or mother relating to a spiritual daughter or son can impart the thing that Paul is telling us needs to be imparted. Because it's not just a message. Why does he send Timothy? He says, in fact, I think I might have this on a slide here. He says, I'm sending him to you. Oh, that's the other part there. Okay, I don't know. Um, why does, if you look at the passage, I'm sending Timothy to you. Why? Because he is faithful. He's my son. And he will teach you my, he says, way of life. Way of life. That's very different than he'll tell you the stuff. A way of life only can be imparted in a closer relationship than we have going on right now. I remember um, one, of the, one of the greatest um, lessons on parenting I ever learned was from one of my professors when he had me staying overnight at his house. Because he talked about parenting, and I had heard him talk about parenting, but it was when I saw him deal with a temper tantrum with all five kids in the room with his eight-year-old in real time, which must have been more embarrassing because I was there, but to handle it properly with the kind of discipline necessary, but not blowing up and flying off the handle with anger, but actually disciplining the child, and like holding that all together, and doing the work of discipline, but also the work of directing. Um, and to see a parent that had guts and took action. Um, I saw that, and that did more for me than I don't know how many lectures he could have given. I got to watch it happen. I learned so much. And honestly, it was the three days I spent at his house that took me from where I was to where I needed to get to in this way. I— I didn't want to have children when I crossed his threshold because I just didn't know if it was possible to raise like non-idiot children in this culture. I just didn't know if that could be done because this culture has so much influence. We farm out so much of our children's upbringing to schools for schooling that I just didn't know if it was possible to have enough influence to raise children that would love Jesus and be just godly, you know? And I saw that it could be done. It just took guts and action. And I realized then why it was so uncommon, because we tend to be lazy and shiftless and self-involved. And so taking action and sacrificing takes humility. And so I realized something had to happen in me, but if that happened in me, I had a shot at raising the kind of children that I knew I had to raise if I was going to have them. And it took me somewhere, and it happened because he, not because he took, stepped out of the role of teacher and he stepped into the role of father. So here's the question. If it's a way of life that comes with the message of the gospel, and if ways of life are communicated not mainly through teachers, but through life-on-life -life contact that is like fathering and mothering, why aren't there scads of these kinds of relationships all around us that you know about? Like, think about it. Count in your, in your head how many fathering and spiritual fathering and mothering relationships you know about in this church right now. Can you, are you going to get off one hand? Because I couldn't. Couldn't get off one hand. But apparently this is supposed to be normal. And this is the way it's done. Right? And, and you can say, well, Nick, I don't like the spiritual father and mothering thing. That sounds a little odd to me. What about mentoring? Well, just let's read our classical books, right? That's from the Odyssey, who was mentor. It was a guy. We call it mentoring because it's from a guy's name who was mentor. Mentor was a replacement father. That's what he was. Odysseus was off to war. His son had no father. 
Mentor was one of Odysseus' close friends and servants, but mentor shaped Odysseus' son to be like him while he was away, hoping he would come back someday and enjoy his son in adulthood. Right? It's a classical reference to somebody who is a replacement father. And here's why I believe spiritual fathering and mothering is so rare. One is because, one is because for a lot of us, our spirituality is so shallow that we really aren't, wouldn't be of much help. And so I think every Christian has to be training day in and day out, knowing that the role of spiritual father or spiritual mother or spiritual— I mean, what's Timothy? Timothy is a spiritual big brother, basically, right? Being a spiritual big brother or big sister, that role is coming for you. If you live out the life God wants for you, that role is either here or coming. And so we got to prepare for it. There's got to be enough substance there, right? But secondly— the culprit for this is the same culprit that is probably the case whenever there is any lack of spiritual growth anywhere. It's pride. It's pride. The idea of seeking out a spiritual father or mother to us, but it just sounds too involved, maybe a little cultish, too much authority to give to somebody. That's, isn't that hierarchical? I mean, shouldn't we be moving to parenting models that are peer-based rather than taking the hierarchy of the oppressive family structure and bringing it into the church? I mean, it, It doesn't appear that way in the, in the scriptures, so far as I can tell. But it's really us. We're offended by the idea. That's what it is. You know, what would you, what would you think if somebody spent, if some older man or woman spent some time with you and was helping you along, and you found out, kind of informally, you just kind of run into each other, and you found out that they had told somebody else that they were mentoring you, but that had not been formally arranged. How would you feel? You'd probably feel like that person a little uppity, right? You'd be like, oh, really? You're mentoring me? Well, it's... Rather than being thankful, oh, maybe that person will meet with me again then. You need to know this because everything that we do at High Point, every environment, our worship services, our small groups, our children's ministries, our hospitality initiatives, our men's and women's ministries, literally everything exists to form a spiritual family that loves Christ and it passes on the way of life. They are all environments in which the relationships of spiritual father, fathering and mothering can happen. But you, you can't programmatize the organic thing that is a family. I, I cannot create a program, really, that causes people to father and mother each other. That comes from goodwill and sharing. It comes from voluntarily opening your life. And you say, well, Nick, you could make a program. No, because the minute you open your life, it will just happen. The minute you say, my life is open, and you invite people and you start interacting with other people, people will come to them. I don't, I can make it a program, but I don't need to. It organizes itself if we are that kind of people. But the, the issue is not the structure. The issue is where our heart is. Are we humble enough to realize we should be under someone's authority. That there should be someone, not just with the position of, of a fatherliness in our life, but actually who can read us the riot act and tell us what, I mean, be like, dude, you need to quit that. And even if we disagree, we go, maybe I need to think, at least I need to think about quitting that or ask somebody else I trust who's like a spiritual father or mother to me. And we need to recognize this because we live in a very unfathered generation. And one of, the one of the problems in the church is, is that we can't speak frankly to each other. We blow up. We have all kinds of problems. But you, you know what the, the answer—I was talking with Tom Flaherty from City Church this week about this. Because I'm a confronter. I love confrontation, love yelling at people. I mean, I, I mean you know what I mean. I, I love arguments. I love getting in it with people. And c confrontation isn't—doesn't take any emotional energy. I get amped up by it. But I was talking with this guy, Tom, and he said, he said yeah, but here's the thing we've got to realize. Spiritual fathering and mothering— um, really is about empowering people. It's really about—it's much more a ministry of encouragement. And here's why. He said, because people have to be emotionally stable enough to be confronted, and nobody is. People who have a father or mother hole in them, they're, they're just too unstable emotionally. They're not secure enough. And so when you say something to them, they, they flip out. They go all, all haywire and crazy. And so first what we need is a ministry of encouragement and a ministry of lifting people up, a ministry of older men and women going to younger men and women, at least in the faith, may not be by age, might be by age, may not be, to say, you can be this. 
You could, God can take you there. Grace works. These things can happen. You can become that person. You have this dream of being this kind of parent, this kind of husband, this kind of mother, this kind of entrepreneur, this kind of whatever. That can happen. God can do things in you. It not, the last word about you is not your sinful nature. The last word about you is the cross and the spirit and the redemptive power of God that can transform you. There is a power that can affect your life, and I will walk through that with you if you are willing. If you want to be a person of action and guts, I'm in. And that becomes all the more important the less the natural family is doing that in any culture. But the work of spiritual fathering and mothering and the work of humility and the, the death of pride has to come from ceasing to snuggle with it and starting to struggle with it. That's true. But it also—the reality is, is that you can't do it. You can't do it. I mean, we, but there is one— who was sent by God to be a second Elijah to, it says in the book of Malachi chapter 4, to turn the hearts of fathers to their sons and sons to their fathers. It, there was a reason why the second person of the Trinity took on the epitaph among us humans as the son. And he spoke to the first person of the Trinity as the father. There's a reason why this was spoken. There was a reason why he, he had, he instructed us to call God father. Because this is the picture he wanted to use. And it can only happen when we see their relationship. And we say, I want that. I want that. And when we see somebody imitating that father so much that when we want to be like that greater father, we'll let that person be a mentor, a replacement father to us. Because they're closer than I am, and I want to be that. And it takes humility, and it takes godliness, it takes all these things. But if, if we will allow the work of humility to happen, that will happen if and only if we will believe in Jesus. If we will trust his way, if we will believe in his method, if we will trust in the spiritual work he will do in us through the Holy Spirit, if we recognize that he will atone for all of our sins and open us up to everything he has for us, if we will believe, this can work. Let's pray. Father, um, this is not something we talk about very much. Um, and there's not a lot of passages that, that would cause us to jump on it, but it's very prominent here. And we pray that you would make us the sort of church in which um, there is not kind of a heavy-handed or presumptuous kind of relationship of mentoring or spiritual fathering and mothering, but that there is a very sort of organic and loving and empowering and encouraging um, way about this, such that people are, um, are built up and— um, and built together so we can be that seamless garment of unity that you so desired for us to be, that you've, you've spilled your own blood, that we would be. I pray that you'd help us to be that in Christ's name.